Hey, good morning, church. Good morning, BJ. How are we doing? Great. I, hey, I want to say it feels good to be back, but I also want to give God glory and thanks that he has equipped our church with great pastors who can also teach and handle the word of God well. And I know you've been blessed. I've been blessed by um, being underneath Pastor Chad and Pastor Kells preaching the last few weeks. And so I just want to say thank you to the Lord for that gift. Um, now, before we get started, I just want to like kind of get the elephant or call the elephant in the room out and just be like, hey, this is kind of like a joyful and sad day for a good portion of us here at Austin Hills Church because we are celebrating and also kind of grieving Mary Ellen uh, Johnson's retirement. So this is technically like her last Sunday here at the church, but not her last Sunday in staff because she's going on a mission trip to Romania. And so I wanted to do a few things. Like if you're not aware, we are celebrating her, honoring her and sharing stories um, with her and of her after church over in the community hall. But like I wanted to share with you um, a little bit of my perspective in my experience with Mary Ellen. And I texted her late last night. I said, hey, you know, what comes around goes around, Mary Ellen. And she's like, well, I got a mic too. I'm like, yeah, but I'm preaching. You're not back there. So um, in all honesty, like Mary Ellen has been a real gift and treasure, I know, to the church and to you, but for me specifically, um, I, I was surprised to look back and also discover that she played a very motherly nurturing role for my heart the last six years. And so she's very dear to me. She spoke a lot of life to me and encouraged me in a lot of difficult times in the last six years. And um, one of the things that I've come to discover about Mary Ellen, which quite honestly surprised me, shocked me, and thrilled me all at once, was um, she's, she knows how to have some fun. So um, <laughs> early on in the first couple of years of being on staff, um, as you all know, I don't have a real fondness for cats. And so um, I would come into my office, and without knowing it, there's like these random pictures of cats in random spots all over my office. And immediately I'm thinking it's like the youth staff, right? And, and she, I'd be like, Mary Ellen, do you know who did it? And she's like, no, I have no idea. So then the next time she's pranked me was when we redid these lights and I go out to my vehicle and I find that a lot of the old lights that we were throwing in a dumpster found their way in the back of my car. And immediately, I, like she was the only one around and I was like, Mary Ellen, who did this? I don't know. Do you know anybody? Has anybody talked? And then like I, I sort of stumbled upon her doing it. And so then... Um, discovered it was her. And so just this weekend, I came into my office last night to pray and prepare for the sermon. And this is what I found on my door. <laughs> Mary Ellen is a joy. She is a real joy. I love her dearly. And Vengeance is mine, says Brandon. <laughs> I see you. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, now, we're entering a series called Altars, and we're going to be moving into the series to prepare our hearts for the fall. We believe God is doing something really sweet and beautiful in the hearts of people in our church and around us. And so we're moving into this month specifically a time of prayer and fasting. And so we're going to call it 21 days of prayer and fasting, depending on when you start. It could be 28 days. It all is up to you. But we provided for you a resource to kind of guide you and to aid you along in this journey. So here Here's what I'm asking you to do this month. First and foremost, I want to encourage you, attend every Sunday if possible, okay? Because I do believe that the messages that we're going to go through and the content we're going to process here and in our small groups will be life-changing. And I believe it's something that God will have for us as we prepare ourselves for what God is going to do in and through this church. Secondly, I do want to encourage you, don't just throw this 21 days of prayer and fasting off. I want to encourage you intentionally set aside time in your schedule to, to focus on prayer, okay? Like maybe set aside a sacred place, maybe in altar, if you would, to have a communion with God in those moments. I want to encourage you to fast at least once 
right, to give up eating for a day and experience the hunger that happens just naturally and take that hunger and say, God, would you give me that hunger for you? God, let me feast on you. That's ultimately why we fast. But also I want to ask you to make sure you plan and, and, and um, intentionally choose to attend our next revival night, which is going to be September 7th, okay? I want to encourage you to do this because we do believe that when we pray, God moves. And so we want God to like churn up the soil of our hearts because we're expecting God to do some things. Okay, now in this series, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, I want to let you know that we're going to invite you to do a few things basically almost every Sunday, okay? And I want to let you know what I'm going to ask you to do later at the end of the message. I'm going to invite you to place your trust in Jesus. If you've never trusted him for your forgiveness of sins, if you've never trusted him for the peace that you've been longing for, I'm going to give you that opportunity, and I pray that as you hear God's word, you would sense the conviction in your heart to place your trust in him. Secondly, I'm going to invite you to return to the Lord. Some of you may have been Christians following Jesus for some time, but maybe this summer or maybe the last season of your life, you sort of just created some distance And yet, you may still be in church, but there's still distance in your heart. This is an opportunity for you to return back to the Lord. And third, we're going to invite you to tear down altars that you have built to idols. Because that's important. And what you see up here, we've put up our our prayer kneelers up front. And at the end of the service, I'm going to invite you in agreement with the Holy Spirit and whatever the Holy Spirit does in your heart, to choose to trust him as an act of humility to come forward, right? If you're going to place your trust in Jesus, I want to encourage you, come forward. If you're going to return back to the Lord, I want to encourage you to come forward. And if you feel convicted to tear down altars in your life that are built to idols, I want to encourage you to come forward. Because in a real, in symbolic sense, like this is an altar. There's nothing magical that technically happens in the process. It's an act of trust and humility. Okay? It's not for show. It's for you and the Lord. So, Let's talk about altars, because what I want to do this morning in this message is I want to kind of explain the function and the heart behind why we build altars, and then I want to look at a passage of scripture to help us see how that plays out in a story. Altars play a significant function and have a significant purpose in the realm of worship, okay? God designed the function and role of altars. We see in scripture that there's an altar in heaven, okay? And when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the commandments, to get God's instructions, and also to get the blueprints for the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, we see in Hebrews that he was to design it after what he saw in heaven. And if there's an altar in heaven, that means there's something significant that translates down to altars here on earth. Now, we technically think that altars are just external things. Like, they're like a mantle up front or it's specifically in the building. But what we know to be true is that altars just aren't external. They're also internal. Because altars are things that we build to worship. An altar requires three specific things. It requires some sort of like sacred place, right? In biblical language, we we think of the tabernacle or a temple, and that's where the altar is. A sacred place really is like also our hearts because we know in the New Testament that we are the temple of God. Altars serve in that function where we come to either have this exchange with a deity, exchange with God, or it's built as a result of an encounter with God. And so the altar needs a sacred place. And when we come to an altar, we bring sacrifices and offerings. Like that is ultimately the function. And when God designed and gave us the role of an altar, it's in its simplest terms, a place where God and humanity meet. That's ultimately the heartbeat of it. 
So just think about some sacred places, because I know, like, it's hard to maybe contextualize it outside of the religious domain. But let's just, let's just play with this a little bit. It's football season. <laughs> Justin Fields played really well last night. Just saying. Okay. And you're like, who's that? Okay. See? I'm proving it to you right now. Stadiums, are they not sacred places? We sacrifice money and time to go to worship. And, oh, boy, do we worship at stadiums. What about bars, clubs? Isn't that sometimes a sacred place because you go there to an altar there and you make sacrifices and offerings to it in hopes to get something? And what is it that you're hoping to get? Yeah, it's your pursuit of pleasure, joy, satisfaction. Maybe it's your job. Maybe your job is your sacred place where there's an altar. Maybe it's your family. Your family is the sacred place where you built an altar. Maybe it's the, like, right? You can understand as you start to contextualize this that this isn't just a churchy thing. Because we're created in the image of God and God designed us to find our pleasure, to find our joy, to find our peace in him as we worship him. And because there's sin in this world, we now have become laborers in an idle factory where we build altars everywhere and anywhere in order to find the joy, the satisfaction, the pleasures, the peace, and the delight that our hearts instinctively long for. I mean, just think about this for a moment. The things that you think you need in order to bring you joy or peace, what have you sacrificed? How much time relational equity, right? Like you, when you start to dig into this and reflect on this, man, it really starts to like get a little too close to home. And because we are worshipers, I'm telling you, if we were to look at it with sober eyes, we will quickly see altars are everywhere. They are everywhere. And because altars are everywhere, you and I have to constantly decide who or what we are going to worship. We have to learn how to treasure the altar that we build to the Lord above all else. And we have to learn how to protect that altar because that is a sacred place. This is one of the main themes in Scripture. Over and over and over we see this play out. None clearer, in my opinion, than in when Elijah faced the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. And in this story, like, Elijah comes and he shows, does this showdown with the prophets of Baal. They build the altars, one to Baal and one to, to Yahweh. And, and then, like, fire comes down from heaven. And Elijah speaks to the people of God. And he says, how long will you waver between two choices, two gods. How long will you limp between the two? It's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 6. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot have multiple authors in your life to worship multiple different things because you will learn to despise the one and hate the other and your life will end up in misery and futility. This is so important for us to understand. So the question I'm asking you, and you're going to hear this every Sunday for the next four weeks, is who are you going to build an altar to? Not only build, but also protect and set aside as sacred. So this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at the most important altar that you can build. And it's the altar that is inside of you, the altar in your heart. Because this is the altar that goes with you everywhere. This is the altar that informs how you see yourself, your identity. This is the altar that shapes and forms how you see others, how it shapes and forms how you live and what you live for, your purpose. This is the most important altar that we build. And because it's the most important altar that we build, it is oftentimes the most difficult to confront because it's so deep to who we are. Because our identity, as we're going to see, is so intimately connected to what we worship. And this is why the Bible says in Proverbs 4.23 that above all else, 
anything else that you do, make this top priority. Guard your heart. Why? Because out of it comes the wellspring of life, joy, delight, peace, right? It's out of there. And the struggle that we have is that guarding our heart is significantly difficult apart from the Holy Spirit because we're sinful and we're broken. And we have to understand that in Jeremiah 17, 9, Scripture says this about our heart apart from the Holy Spirit, that your heart is deceitful and it's sick. Who can understand it? So the phrase, just follow your heart. You do you. Sounds great. Sounds liberating. Let me be me. Let it go. Let it go. It's so dangerous. Kel sang, I had to show him up. He won. He won. <clears throat> He said words, I made noises. (laughs) It is so dangerous to follow your heart. You follow the Holy Spirit. But a life apart from the Holy Spirit, you can't help but follow your heart. And you have to know you're going to be deceived because your heart is deceitful above all things. I'm telling you right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Have you ever been deceived by your heart and bought into the lie, or let me rephrase that, bought into the promise that if I only had this, then I would feel this. If I only got that house, then I would feel good. If I only got that car, then. If I only had this relationship, then. Right? Like we've, we buy into those cultural lies that they promise us. And we move into it because we are a bundle of desires because that is how God created us. And then when you finally get it, it lets you down. It's disappointing. You're like, oh, this is it. I thought it would be better than this. Or you get into a relationship and then they hurt you. Because guess what? Their heart is deceitful too. Money hates you. Money's always trying to leave you. Right? Like, it's like we, we give ourselves to all of these things because that's how we're created. Have you ever experienced any of this? You ever felt the manicness of your desires? The fickleness, the ever-shifting change, all of those uh, promptings, the grass is greener. Have you ever found those pleasures and delights to be like a bottle rocket? Hey, you got a bottle rocket, cool, let's play. What's up? Now what? That's the heart. Why do we do this? Because we're worshipers. That's how God created us. But further than that, God created us with an instinct to pursue desire, to pursue joy, to pursue delight. He created us that way. We were created to find profound joy and delight and pleasure and satisfaction in our worship of God. Yes, created to worship him. That means humanity will always have these desires and always have these pursuits after these desires because we then start to think, because we're broken, that if I had this, this will give me the joy. If I had this, this will give me the desire. That's why we get ourselves in so much trouble. But we're supposed to find it at the altar of worshiping our creator. Sin entered when we rebelled. And our rebellion is distrusting God's goodness, God's love, and God's intentions for us. And ever since the garden, ever since sin came in, we have been playing God, deciding what is right and wrong, and deciding what desire will give us fulfillment. So that's why we continue to build altars. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why do I sin? Besides the fact that's your nature. But like, do you sin because you feel a moral obligation to do so? Why do you sin?
I'm convinced we sin because we experience pleasure. We, we sin because we believe that this thing will give us more pleasure than what God will give us. Hebrews 11, 25 says this, speaking of Moses giving up the things of this world because he wanted to not deal with the, the fleeting desires or the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's all it is. It's deception. I love Psalm 16, specifically verse 2, 4, and 11. I say to the Lord, you are my God. You are my Lord. You alone have the altar in my heart. Because apart from you, I have no good thing. And then look at verse 4. The sorrows are those who run after another God. Those who build other altars to idols. They will multiply their drink offerings of blood. I'm not going to pour out. I'm not even going to put their names on my lips. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. Like Not like some part of joy. Like fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that's why I love one of the great revivalists, Jonathan Edwards. He said this, and he said, God is most glorified in us when we are most happy and delighted and satisfied in him. So when God comes and convicts us and pursues us to help us see and understand the lies that we have believed and the altars that we've built. He's not there to judge you, to condemn you, to punish you, to shame you. He's doing it because he loves you and he wants you to glorify him and you glorify him by enjoying him. Did you know that it's really, really good and appropriate for you to enjoy God? Surprise. It's not what we think often. Because we oftentimes feel so much guilt inside of us. So here's the deal. We need to have an honest perspective of our lives. We need to see our time here on earth in view of eternity and the pleasures and the joys that we chase after. Life is a vapor. Your life is a mist. Rust destroys, moth destroys, hot weather with no rain does cause your home foundation to shift. Cars break down. You never have enough. People will always hurt you and you will always hurt people. The wisest man in the world in Ecclesiastes, he's like, I'm not going to withhold any pleasure from me. I'm going to go after everything my heart desires. His result, empty. Well, I'm going to go after every possession I can possibly get from a tangible good to women. And what was the result? It's empty. And his resolve was saying there's nothing better than just enjoying God. So, okay, this is your life. And imagine that this rope, like, goes all the way to the backstage goes out the door, goes down Mopac forever. No end. It's eternity. And this here, this orange, is your life. You see, your life started at a point in time, and it will forever go in time without end. Because of sin, this is temporary. And here's the thing, we spend the majority, 99.96, that is statistical fact of our time, that was a joke, we focus that much time on this and we never think about this. We believe that we have to go after all of these pursuits, money, relationships, and all that stuff. In fact, the American dream, it's hilarious when you think about it in this view. We spend all of our time, we go to school, we go to college, we pay off student loans, then we start to save. We got to get a house and all that kind of stuff. And then finally, when you get to this part of your life, you start to live it up. 
But when you get to this part of your life, you're too tired to do the things. And then, and then you die. And then what do you do with all of that stuff? I mean, it should astonish us that we believe that the things in this area will give us the greatest desire and joy in our life, that we think that this is what defines us when God has given us an infinity of pleasure of being in his presence, but yet we fixate here. This is why we need to have an honest perspective. What am I going after? What am I pursuing? What are the false altars that I have built in my heart? And I'm telling you right now, Satan knows that the key to keeping you in bondage, the key to keeping you in strongholds, the key from keeping you away from building altars to the Lord is to convince you that all of these things are better than what God can offer you. And then, more sinister still, he's going to connect your identity to these altars. Because this is the way God designed it. We become like what we worship. We find our identity in what we worship. And so we're supposed to find our identity in worshiping our creator. But because we are sinful and we like to play God, we build false altars. And next thing you know, we begin to place our identity on all of these idols. And it causes a massive train wreck. If he can get you to believe that your identity is attached to these false gods, I'm telling you, it will keep you from enjoying God. It will keep you from living in the peace that the gospel offers you. This is a stronghold. And this is why we need to have a real, honest perspective of life. He's trying to deceive you into this. This is it. This is all there is. And this is what matters most. Forget all of this. Here's what I love about God. He knows that we're broken. He knows what we're up against. And he knows the things that draw us. He knows that we're created to be pursuing desires. He knows all of this. And he comes not to guilt, not to shame, but to help us understand the good news that God has come. From Genesis to Revelation, we have a God who pursues us so that we can restore and rebuild an altar that should be only for him. So listen, I'm willing to bet right now that somewhere in your life you have experienced this or maybe this is your reality right now that you have felt or are feeling let down by God. That maybe you're experiencing disappointment with God. Or maybe you feel like that God isn't for you. God doesn't see you. And what we talk about in the Bible is, isn't for you. You're never going to explain it. Or maybe you had expectations that you thought God would fulfill and he hasn't. Maybe he just hasn't yet. Maybe life isn't turning out the way you hoped for. Maybe if you experienced significant injustice and hurt in your life and it's caused you to be bitter and resentful and maybe even angry at God. And I'm telling you, God is angry at those things that have caused that in your life. And maybe it's developed a doubt in your heart which has made you drift away from God and maybe yet it's caused you to intentionally sin against God in order to spite God. Can I tell you something? This is unfortunately normal for all of us. You all have or will have experienced it at least once in your life. But it doesn't have to be that way. John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So here's the story I want to look at. The story of Gideon in Judges 6. The story of Gideon in Judges 6. Background to this story. For 40 years, Israel has been wandering in the wilderness. 
to go into the promised land, land flowing with milk and honey, where they will be his people and he will be his God and they will inherit homes that they don't have to build for. They will inherit fields that they don't have to work after and fill. And it's supposed to be this ultimate fulfillment. And they go through it in Joshua. They conquered the land. They move into and they're exhorted to continue to, to drive out the enemies and to choose this day whom you will worship. And after Joshua and his generation passed, well, they began to succumb to culture and began to worship the gods of the world around them, specifically to the god Asherah and Baal. Asherah would represent anything related to sex, anything related to relationship, fertility. Baal would be the god of prosperity. And they're like, yeah, we're going to worship God, and we're also going to build an altar to Asherah, and we're also going to build an altar to Baal. So here's the story. That's the background. Now, Jericho, I'm in Joshua 6 there. That's not, no, no. I was like, I don't remember Jericho being in this story at all. (laughs) That was weird. Verse 1, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What did they do that was evil? They built an altar to false gods. They thought that the God of sexuality and the God of prosperity would bring the fulfillment and the joy and the peace that only God could give. So the Lord handed them over to Midian for seven years. What does that mean? He handed them over. Well, God created us with free will. And he's not going to violate free will because love in its inherent nature can only really be love if one chooses to love, which means there's an inherent risk for it to not be reciprocated. And so when God says, I handed them over, what he's essentially saying is, I'm letting them go after the desires of their heart. Romans 1, you see the same thing there. Paul talks about it right there. But God doesn't just let that happen. God is a jealous lover and continues to pursue. He handed them over to Midian for seven years and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves. They're no longer living in these homes. They've made themselves homes in caves. And whenever they would plant crops and it was time to harvest, well, guess what? The Midianites would just come and steal it all away for seven years. And they finally got to the place where they hit the end of the rope, as it says in verse 6, and they cried out to the Lord, finally. Finally. God used Midian to help Israel have an honest perspective of their heart. He handed them over, and in his grace, he pursued them. They cried out. Isaiah 30 says that when we cry out, God hears and he comes. And in that passage in Isaiah 30, it says like, he gave us the bread of adversity. In other words, he let us pursue the desires that we thought would give us satisfaction. But now he sent his teacher. He sent someone to show us the way and to speak the way of God. And when we hear his voice and when we experience God, it says in Isaiah, we will destroy the altars to idols. God comes now, he sends a prophet to the people of Israel, to Gideon, who hilariously is threshing wheat in a wine press. We'll get to that in a moment. But the prophet says to Israel, was I not the one that freed you? Like, did did you forget already that I took you away from your captors in Egypt, that you were in that stronghold and I freed you? Do you not remember that I was the one that led you with with fire and a cloud and I parted the Red Sea and I even stopped the Jordan and you were weak, you were nothing and people were afraid of you? I gave you food, I gave you water. Was I not the one that did it? And I warned you, I told you that I alone am your Lord. Have an altar just for me and to not fear the gods of culture. When you hear the word fear, that just means worship. You see, Israel wasn't piecing it together that their result of their life was because they chose to erect an altar to another God. They became bitter and disappointed and confused at their perspective of God, blaming him. God, where are you? Why didn't you do this? 
And God in his grace, he's like, let me show you your heart. Look at Judges 6, 7. I mean, uh, verse 11. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, came and he sat underneath an oak tree. Just picture this, okay? Imagine that our baptismal out there is a wine press, okay? This is going to be fun. It's a wine press. And Jesus is just sitting on, or sitting underneath that, that branch, our oak branch that's really, really long. He's just chilling right there, okay? Just imagine that. The angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, came and sat underneath the oak. It belonged to Joash, which is Gideon's son. <laughs> Gideon is in this wine press, threshing wheat, because he's hiding from the Midianites. And here comes Jesus. And maybe Gideon even thought, maybe Gideon saw this person. He's like, I'm even hiding from him. Have you ever like got caught doing something that you thought nobody could see you do? Anybody? That's me almost every night in the pantry. <laughs> like like when, the, when, when I think everybody's asleep, I go into the pantry and there's a little box on the top shelf that are all of our kids' treats. I go in there and I think I'm just like, nobody knows, nobody knows, nobody knows. But immediately they're like, Dad! Look at this, verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, who's threshing wheat, which is hilarious, really, because he's not threshing wheat. A wine press, I got a picture of this, a wine press in the ancient Near East was basically in a carving in the rock. I got an arrow that points to it. And it's only about one to two feet deep. In order to thresh wheat in a wine press, you are literally on your hands, in your knees, on your belly, and you, you're like just threshing little scraps here and there. And the angel comes, this kind of comedy. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. <laughs> what we see as comedy, God actually sees as fact. He's calling out truth of who he is. Even though he's sitting in this wine press. <laughs> the Lord is with you. The wine press is nothing but a picture of futility of disappointment, of defeats and hopelessness. I mean, not too long ago, they were thriving. They were in the promised land, experiencing the milk and honey and all the stuff. And they didn't realize that their worship and erecting of other altars to false gods led them to this moment. They're disappointed with God. And all of a sudden, this is where God starts to stir this up. Now, here's what I need you to do this morning. Besides having an honest perspective of your time on earth, you need to be able to share with God your raw and honest emotions of your present circumstance of life. It's okay. Because God already knows. He already knows the issues and the struggles that we're going to have, and that's why he has come. Because notice this. Gideon in verse 13 it says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened? And where are all his wonders that our father told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midian. So please, when you read that full context, it's not like Gideon is actually saying, no, please, Lord, can you tell me? It's more like, please. Why would you say the Lord is with me? When you're in a moment of discouragement and futility and disappointment and hurt, and, and, and it's like hard because you're like kind of equating it to God, how do you feel when people say, hey, God loves you. God is good. Even though it's fact, you're just like, well, if God loves me, then if God is good, then well, why are you saying the Lord is with me? If the Lord is with me, why has he allowed all of this to happen? And we know the stories. We know the supernatural stories. If he could do that then, then none of this makes sense. Where is he? Help me understand. I mean, Gideon is kind of like shushing Jesus. Please. Uh, maybe God knows something about his identity. After all, valiant warrior. 
Then the Lord turned to him in verse 14 and said, go in the strength that you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. In other words, now he's calling out his purpose, which is intimately connected to his identity because Gideon's response is an identity response. I can't do it. I am the least. I am nothing. I am a nobody. And I'm telling you, whenever you find a stronghold or lies about who you are, you will find an altar to a false god. I guarantee it. I promise you that. This is a big deal because in order for God to give us the power and the peace in order to rebuild an altar to him, he has to help us and guide us to see the false altars that we have constructed, specifically the one that has shaped our identity in order to deconstruct it. He needs to remind us of who we are and why he came and what our purpose is. Our purpose is to be in relationship with him. So we can enjoy God forever. And out of that, we flow into mission where we tell other people about Jesus. But we have to confront these things. We have to confront the lies that we have believed about ourselves. I can't do this. Who am I? I'm the least in my family. I have family dysfunction. I'm the runt of the pack. Nobody can love me because of this. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not this enough. I don't have this enough. Whatever it is, the things that you start to believe actually really start to form you and also start to flavor and filter your relationship with God. Or maybe it's not just in the insecure condemnation side. Maybe it's just full of arrogance. I am awesome. I am good enough. I don't need God. To... Our altars inform us of who we are. And if we do not believe who we are as God sees us, and if we don't believe God's heart and his attention towards us, I'm telling you now. You have built altars to things in this area and they have become strongholds in your life. God pursues you in that exact season so that you, through him and with him, can demolish the altars that have dictated and shaped how you see yourself. Because here's what happens next. You can read the rest of the story. Gideon's not sure. He's like, hey, if this is really you, wait here. I want to bring an offering and do something to show me that it's actually you. And he does it. And all of a sudden, it's like the angel of the Lord just like lights up the sacrifice and then he vanishes. And then it says that Gideon like was terrified. He's like, oh my goodness, it is God. It is the Lord. And not only was he fearful that he was in the presence of a holy God, he was absolutely convicted of his sin. And then immediately what we see in this story is that the Lord said in verse 23, peace to you, don't be afraid, for you will not die. So then what did Gideon do? He built an altar to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. Because now he's got peace in his heart. This is the gospel, my friends. Romans 5, 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, when we are confronted by a holy God, we recognize we're the ones who are off, not God. God's always been trying to win our hearts and always trying to redeem and restore our identities because we've been justified by faith, which means Jesus came to earth to make a way for us. He became sin who knew no sin. He was the perfect sacrifice that was needed. And so now because he died on the cross, demolishing every stronghold or power that could be over you, he's like, listen, when you come to me, now I can give you my righteousness because I lived perfectly and I will take all of your sin. And so that way when you stand before the Father, you are declared innocent because of me. You don't have to question. You don't have to worry. You don't even have to be good enough. You are justified. Peace with God. 
And then the resurrection happens and the Holy Spirit comes and now we have the ability to live a new life and the Holy Spirit will always remind us that we are a son and daughter of God, our identity, and he will always root and establish us in the love of Christ. When God pursues you and he reveals to you the altars in your life that are not built for him, he's doing it because he loves you. And when you have that experience and when you see the reality of your life, the false altars in your life, and you start to understand why you are reaping what you have sowed, Lord, forgive me. And then the Lord says, peace. And our job in that moment is to build an altar of worship and praise. The Lord is peace. But the story doesn't end there because the next thing God tells Gideon what to do is to demolish the strongholds that has led Israel aside. Some of you right now do not have peace in your heart because you have never trusted Jesus. Right now is your moment to say, I've experienced the deceitfulness of my life or of my heart. I've experienced the fickleness, the futility. I've lived and operated in a spiritual wine press. I'm trusting you, Jesus. And for some of you right now, and this is true for all of us, let's just be honest. We need the Holy Spirit to show us what altars in our life that we have built in our hearts that have been dedicated to the gods of the culture around us. Tear them down and build an altar to the Lord on top of it. On top of it. Not next to it. On top of it. Here's the deal. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. In view of God's mercies, in view of the grace, in the view of the fact that he comes after us and pursues us when we were lost and wandering, building all sorts of altars, in view of his mercy, he did it all. The only thing we need to do on that altar built to the Lord is to take this, this section of our life and to place that on the altar. When you do, you get eternity in the presence of God where there's fullness of joy, no sorrow, no heartache. He's just this for that what is that idol it's right here are you willing to trade that for this and when we lay down our life we become a living sacrifice which is why I said the altar in our heart is what we take with us everywhere it's your reasonable duty a joy. So here's what I'm asking you to do. We're just going to spend some time in worship and prayer. And like I said before, I'm going to invite you now. If you want to place your trust in Jesus, come up to the altar. You can use one of the kneelers. You can come up to any of these places. And it's just a time for you and God If you want prayer, some of us will pray for you. And you come up, you want to place your trust in Jesus. You just, Lord, I'm I'm choosing to trust you. Trusting your sacrifice and death on the cross. That you paid for my wrongs and my sin. That I can now have peace with God because of that. I want the new life. I want a new heart. If that's you, come on up to the altar.
And if there's anyone in here that needs to return to the Lord and confess sin, start in a posture of humility and demolish those strongholds, those altars, come on up to the front. And we're going to pray for you. And we're just going to let the Spirit to do the work. It's just between you and the Lord. We'll turn the lights down. Don't be embarrassed. It's trust and humility, and we're agreeing with what the Holy Spirit's doing in our hearts. Lord, we thank you that when we cry out, you hear us. You long to be gracious to us. And thank you, God, that you did create us to find desire and pleasure and joy, to pursue, want to pursue those things. In your perfect order of creation, it was to be completely found in you. But Lord, we confess that sin and the rebellious nature of our heart has really distorted what we think we need and long for. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you sometimes for your grace that you never tell us actually why, but the simple answer you give us is, I am with you. I am with you. I will be with you. And that's a promise of relationship, of covenant and fidelity. You will never leave us. You'll never forsake us. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. Lord, forgive us for the altars that we have in our hearts that are not for you, that have been set apart for other things, that even now we find a challenge to want to destroy. So, Lord, I just ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would lead people to salvation, that they would find peace in Christ because of the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that you would call your children back home to your heart, and that we would be a people, a church, that wants to destroy these altars to false gods because we know they don't satisfy we know in our hearts and our spirits that you alone are good, but yet we struggle. So Lord, here we are. We just ask for you to minister to us. Again, I want to encourage you. Follow the promptings in your heart. I encourage you to come forward to the altar.